Hi, thanks for joining our podcast today. We are the Injury Prevention Coordinators for the Trauma 1 and 2 Adult Trauma Centers in the Greater Salt Lake area. I'm Emily. I'm Teresa. I'm Brittany. And I'm Jamie. Welcome to today's podcast, Adventures in Injury Prevention, uh, Safely Exploring Utah's Great Outdoors. Uh, We're happy to talk about snow safety again today. My name is Jamie Troyer. I'm the Trauma Injury Prevention and Outreach Coordinator for the University of Utah Health. I'm going to pass it over to Teresa. And I'm Teresa. I'm the Injury Prevention and Trauma Outreach Coordinator for Intermountain Medical Center. And can I say welcome to winter, loving the snow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. And my name is Emma Jane. I am brand new to this and I am the Injury Prevention and Outreach Coordinator for St. Mark's Hospital. And together with us today, we have a few guests who I'm actually going to let introduce themselves so that I don't butcher anything. (laughs) We'll start with TJ. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am uh, currently one of the Wilderness Medicine Fellows, um, pursuing board certification in emergency medicine. And I got my start in the snow sports ski industry when I was 16, teaching ski school back in Michigan at Timber Ridge. And then at Eldora in college, doing a little bit more ski school and then got into ski patrolling and worked through a couple resorts back in Colorado as I went to med school and eventually got lucky enough to end up back in Utah. And then currently this season, got back into ski patrolling with one of the dock patrols up in the canyons, um, up in the Cottonwoods. So have some unique perspective to bring, I think. And sitting next to me is Dash. Hi, everyone. (laughs) My name is Dash Long. Um, I have been in Utah since 2004. I uh, come from a background of professional big mountain and extreme skiing, making ski films, mostly in the backcountry, um, all over the world. But we have spent a ton of time uh, filming s- sort of aggressive <laughs> and progressive ski lines and jumps and, and with snowboarders too, uh, right here in the Utah backcountry. Um, and even a lot, even just in the resorts. So um i'm happy to be here and i've listened to a few of these these podcasts and it's a really cool thing that you guys have going on so feel free to just put me on the spot and ask me whatever questions you want from the the non-medical side of of uh the the type of people that are bringing you guys traumatic injuries (laughs) traumas to take care of perfect and then polly my name is Polly Dacus. I am a nurse. I currently manage the Snowbird Ski Clinic for the University of Utah, located up at the Snowbird Ski Resort. We treat injured skiers on the mountains and um, generally anybody in the vicinity of Little Cottonwood for various kinds of ski-related injuries, but also um, any kind of injuries that may happen whatsoever. Awesome. Yes, I worked with Polly back in the back in the day. <laughs> Back in the day. Back in the day. It wasn't even that long ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, today, I think a big thing for me when I start thinking of winter and snow and all the safety we need to worry about, especially with kiddos who are learning to ski and finding their their adventure up there. um, I just wanted to kind of dive deep into the types of skiing, skiing conditions, and then the basics of safety and then what to look out for. Things we would want people who are maybe not from here, what we would want them to know about our canyons and about the basics of skiing. And then also people who are like me, who grew up here and never skied until 
they were 28. <laughs> so um, yeah, we'll just start off there. If you guys would go and just kind of tell us, you already went into your background of skiing, but I would like to talk about um, what types of skiing you do and what you prefer. Okay, so like from, I think when we talk about like skiing, it's a general term, um, including kind of all the snow sports. So you have alpine skiing, which has a fixed toe and a fixed heel, which allows you to control the ski. Um, pretty standard. I think that's what most people associate with skiing, the releasable bindings, which are one of the safety mechanisms that we have. There's telemark skiing, which is a non-releasable uh, free heel, which is a little bit more challenging and different. And then you've got snowboarding, which uh, I think should be pretty self-explanatory. I hope people have those images. And then some of the newer stuff, some of the mountains, I don't know if Utah really has it, but like the ski biking and things like that are becoming more popular in some places. Mm -hmm. And some ski areas allow access to it. Um, so I think that's kind of covers the types. And then you do have like backcountry, yeah, cross country and Nordic skiing. And then you have resort skiing or inbound skiing, which implies you've got lifts like chairlifts or gondolas or trams that'll get you to the top. And then you've got professionals like ski patrollers that are out there controlling the avalanche hazard and trying to minimize the risk of avalanches as much as possible. Um, there's a whole other conversation in regards to avalanches and avalanche hazard, but patrollers do a great job of controlling that. And then you have backcountry where it falls upon the individuals and their group to make the right decisions about what the avalanche hazard is for the day and where they're traveling and how they're traveling. And we can definitely dive more into that because it's been a, a super active week in the Wasatch, especially. And we've mm -hmm. seen three incidences that were all incredibly lucky um, when it comes to the avalanche hazard. And then we did see, unfortunately, uh, a fatality this past week as well in the canyons, and that was an inbounds, but that was more just based upon skier trauma, it sounds like. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything to add on the introduction from Dash and Polly, but then the safety, I think we can definitely tie into pretty easily. What kind of skiing do you like to do? I, oh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, this week it was all inbounds because I didn't feel comfortable with the avalanche reports and I'd be skiing Alta every day and it was some of the deepest snow I think I've seen inbounds in a long time and didn't feel the need to go backcountry, but I do love a good backcountry tour. Um, and I love the thought process and the, the whole part of like building the tour out. But mm -hmm. yeah, what about you, Dash? What do you like? Well, I, I'm a powder skier predominantly. Um, <laughs> I live for skiing powder. Um, so I, I will go to the resort or into the backcountry in pursuit of powder and I'll choose a number of different ways to access that powder, um, whether it be foot powered hiking in, uh, up or using the chairlifts to get out to the backcountry. Um, some people refer to that as slack country, um, or a snow machine or snowmobile um or a helicopter or a cat a snow cat um those ones typically aside from a, a snow machine would come along with a guiding outfit that would take you as well so that kind of takes a little bit of the the pressure of of making decision of, about where exactly to ski and where it's safe to ski off your plate although you should always rely on your own judgment as well um and then 
I guess to further break down the ski genres too, within alpine and downhill skiing, you have uh, racing, ski racing or alpine. Um, you've got freestyle, which is typically moguls and aerials. There's um, a free ride and that typically encompasses um, slope style park. So uh, big jumps, tabletops um, and rails and then half pipe. Um, and then in that camp, a sort of a, an offshoot of that is this big mountain free ride category. And a lot of kids are competing in that these days. Um, there's a huge circuit of competitions, but, uh, that's where you ski up to a mountain. You look at a big face with a bunch of different rocks and cliffs and skiable lines and ways down the hill. And you kind of take your own creative approach to how to get down that, throw in some airs and some tricks and make it look super exciting. Um, and all of those have come with their own dangers. Um, all of them produce a, a lot of injuries each year. Uh, unfortunately, it just comes with the territory when you're pushing yourself in those categories. But I think that kind of helps explain a little bit further about what TJ was breaking down so that the audience can understand the different types of skiing. I think generally when people come out and go on a ski vacation, you're buying a lift ticket or you have a pass and you're just going up to ski the resort. And if you haven't really skied in the powder, you're probably staying on the ski run or piste, which is something you guys have talked about on, on past podcasts. Um, so once you leave the piste and you start skiing powder or skiing bumps or in more variable conditions in, in the non-controlled or less controlled areas, then you start to open yourself up for, for more injury prone type of accidents. So Papa, TJ, what about you? I say, I'll, I'll let Polly answer. I just have a, I have a question on like, if so, if I'm, I live in, like I'm born and raised Utah, sorry, I'm kind of lame, like haven't been out of my own state, why well, have, but you know, but if I'm coming from say, I have family in Minnesota that skis and I'm coming to Utah, I'm a pretty good skier. I feel like I'm a good skier. What's the best um, uh, map or measurement or whatever you want to call it that says, this is like, don't go to the black diamonds, go to blue or go to whatever. How do I know, how do I fit my skill to Utah's mountains? Because we do mm -hmm. have the greatest snow and we have the greatest mountains, but, and so you're excited to come out here and then discover that, whoa, it's not quite what you had anticipated or prepared for. How, mm -hmm. how do we, in that, in our injury prevention world, <laughs> you know, get that message out there to know your own abilities how, how do i see utah and be safe that's a huge question sorry I, i've got some thoughts but i'd honestly be curious to hear polly's take on this just because i know she sees these patients more frequently than dash or i do so they're seeing the people that have some of that vacation regret from maybe not figuring out the right way to approach these mountains because i agree it's different from michigan minnesota um polly what do you think I think you should assume that the Western slopes are very different than wherever you came from, even if that's the East Coast. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly from a flatter area, like the, the northern part of the United States. Um, I mean, I think one way you could tell is by looking at the number of greens that are rated on a, on a website before you would plan your vacation out here of which resort should you go to. Snowbird has a distinct lack of green rated slopes. Um, so you can already know that that's going to be a bigger mountain. It's going to have a lot more aggressive terrain. Um, because I'm not, you're, I mean, it's a great question. It's not like you can necessarily look at reviews and figure out like, oh, this was really fun for a beginner or an intermediate. And you can't really ask if you don't know anyone that lives there. Um, so I think if you were totally going in blind, yeah, look for a mount, percentage of the mountain that is beginner and intermediate accessible. And that's going to tell you whether you're going to have a better time. Assume that you are an intermediate if you're coming from anywhere else in the country. Yeah, I, I think I remember kind of growing up and people always made the analogy like, oh, if you can ski a black diamond ski run in Michigan, then you can probably manage a blue in Colorado. Um, and I think to that point, like if you're not really sure... In order, if you're new to a mountain area, I'm a big advocate for ski schools um, or the guide programs. A lot of places have like a mountain host that you can go find some information. You can talk to them about what the conditions have been for that season. Um, like this year, if you're not familiar with skiing soft snow, you could definitely find yourself over your head pretty quickly. Um, and I think tapping into the local resources at the area. So you have a lot of information from the mountain hosts or those kind of um, guest host programs but then also having a really low threshold to just get a ski school lesson, even if it's just to guide you around and show you the area, if you're new to those mountains, I think would be my big suggestions, which I know can be a little pricey, but I'm sure you could also pick something up and uh, learn a new skill or at least have more fun, especially if your whole vacation is kind of predicated on getting some good skiing in. Yeah. I would say too, just sticking to green at for at first. I mean, get a trail map when you get to the resort, stick to the green runs, and then work your way up to the blue because there's going to be steeper spots on those blues. And then I think generally just stay on the trail versus off the trail because yeah. things can get spicy pretty quick when you go off trail and you can find yourself in either really deep moguls, really deep powder, or on top of a cliff that you'll have to hike your way out of or uh, consider jumping off of to get past. Yeah, I had a, a Michigander actually on Saturday. I was skiing with the snowboard patrol and we, we had to coach a gentleman up off a cliff with a snowboard to hike himself out. Um, and it took a while, but I think they learned their lesson that one, you don't go under the closures, which is also, I think a big part of it is there's uh, something the National Ski Area Association, the National Ski Patrol, and the Professional Ski Instructors of America, they've got their ski responsibility code. And it's kind of the agreed upon etiquette, I guess you'd say, and like kind of the rules that skiers need to, and snowboarders alike, need to have before they go out into the mountains. Um, and that comes from either having someone teach you along the way, like a parent or a good friend or getting into a ski school lesson. And, and those instructors really do kind of encourage that you know how to load the lifts, that you have the proper safety equipment on your devices. You pay attention to signs and closures and kind of know how to ski the run safely to ensure that you're not hitting people or you're not taking people by surprise. Um, so I think there's some other kind of tools out there as well. I totally agree. Just yeah. kind of working your way up. 
my, my heart always breaks when I'm trying to figure out how to get somebody back home. So, we, you know, we want you to come here, come and have a great experience and go home safe and come back again. So, yeah, I appreciate yeah. the information. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, when, like, if somebody was coming to visit and they were debating which resort to go to, what are things to take into consideration when picking a resort? I like that, you know, Polly said, pick one that has the most green runs. <laughs> Um, but you know, like there's just di different atmosphere and different terrain, uh, between like, you know, the Wasatch here or up in park city and everything in between. Uh, I, I'll dive in on that, I guess. <laughs> I can speak a little bit to that dash. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think beyond skill, something you need to consider is what kind of experience are you looking for? Because if you would like to have shopping and dining and like maybe go for like a horse-drawn sleigh ride, you need to go to Park City because you're just not going to have those experiences in the Cottonwood Canyons. Um, you're just go to dining. Park City anyways, right? We yeah, just period. Just go, go to Park, Park City. City. <laughs> just go to Park City. But, but really, like, you know, for accessibility and for nightlife and for everything else that's going on besides just skiing the slopes you've got to think about Park City. Big Cottonwood is particularly under-resourced for restaurants and anything to do besides skiing, snowshoeing, hiking, that kind of stuff. Um, and Little Cottonwood is slightly better on the restaurant options, but still there's like no shopping. I mean, you could shop for a pair of ski boots, but that's about it. So if you've got a family and you think that you're going to want to do a lot of other things, then think about where you're going for that too we're much more remote in the cottonwoods yeah and then as far as ski terrain goes um my recommendation would be start in park city and deer valley um the runs are just typically uh not quite as steep mm -hmm. Um, a little bit more rolling and with, with plenty of sort of flat, more green and approachable terrain um, and also less daunting uh, terrain features to navigate. And then um, if you were to work your way into that Wasatch front from Wasatch back, I think big cottonwood um, and then little cottonwood, I would even say Alta before Snowbird snowbird if you just decide to come to snowbird and take the tram up there's there's really only one easy way down and it it's a long long run so if you you're coming from somewhere with you're used to skiing three four hundred vert and you're trying to make it down three thousand um in one run on your first run yeah no i think to that point i remember patrolling and one run in Colorado would be the equivalent to an entire day of skiing in the Midwest. And people didn't necessarily put that together because you're looking at a 250, 300 foot vertical hill in Michigan and you're doing that, you know, 20 times in a day, 30 times in a day. And then you come out here and that, that 300 foot hill is all of a sudden 3000 feet. Yeah, it's, it's 10 times a day. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's intimidating and it's more, exhausting and then you add in altitude as well right mm -hmm. so and i think that is another nice thing the canyon like canyons in park city and deer valley is seems a little bit lower in the base area there in the valleys um definitely a little bit more accessible and i agree better for the family as a whole there's more to do yeah 
Yeah. Then the further out you go to north and south, the resorts will get a little bit more quiet. So yeah. Go, going up towards Snow Basin, Powder Mountain, or Beaver, mm-hmm. and then down towards Sundance and, and further. Um, but yeah, we, we have a ton of resorts. I mean, even so, Nordic Valley, too. There's yeah. so many resorts within an hour, hour and a half. It's pretty special. Yeah, Dash, I did find the best way, the easiest way back down the mountain and snowboard was back on the tram. And then I went down that way. So I just want to share that with you. Yeah. But yeah. I was going to talk about that. If they're going north or south, so not kind of staying in here, like down to Beaver Mountain or up to Snow Basin, you're you're not com- coming into like more of the, I guess, kind of the popular locations like Snowbird, Brighton, uh, Deer Valley, all that kind of stuff. Is there anything different with the terrains? And then TJ, we got to come back to this ski biking thing because I just, it doesn't make any sense, sense to me. So we'll have to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> My friend started a ski bike company. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Anyway, I guess you can concur on this too, that the terrain, if you go to Snow Basin, you can get yourself into plenty of steep terrain. Mm -hmm. It's up high, it's steeper. And as you get lower back down to the base, it flattens out. Um, Powder Mountain is, is typically pretty manageable. There's some steeper spots, but it's, it's any of these resorts if you go to the very top you're probably going to find steeper terrain and if you need to get down an easy way it's going to be a cat round that zigzags mm-hmm. across um and then as you get down lower back to the base area it gets a little flatter but um i have not skied beaver out of logan uh i would love to maybe we should do that mm-hmm. um but uh snow basin and powder mountain powder mountain has more digestible terrain um and it's it's pretty fun just a lot of lower angle there's something about powder mountain that reminds me of like these little ski areas in michigan like really approachable really Mm -hmm. easy to be at they i love how they limit their tickets and often have good snow but yeah i agree way way more approachable um yeah, in regards, I, I mean, it's the same kind of range, so you can definitely find some similar terrain as well. And then in regards to ski biking, <laughs> it's been a newer thing, and a lot of ski areas have not adopted or, or really been too keen on it. Um, but the idea is you don't necessarily put your legs at jeopardy. So I know some people with knee injuries and things like that that have rehabbed and just aren't comfortable getting back on a snowboard or skis have picked it up. Um it's definitely very tricky because you can imagine that your wheels are replaced by skis and you don't have pedals. Well, you have like foot pegs that you can stand on and then you're kind of sliding the bike very similarly. You're using the edges and you're, you're kind of sliding, skidding. Um, it seems like a big mechanism of injury for me, honestly. Um, but you know, yeah, yeah, I can I've just picture it. I'm picturing all the injuries that can happen with yeah, I mean, adding that addition are, to it. Yeah, I, I've known workers. some people. Yeah, New trauma workers just picture injuries all day. <laughs> it's all I do, all day yeah. long. Uh, but I mean, in that case, the full face helmets, the C spine protectors, the pads, mm-hmm. um, highly recommended. Uh, and I would say, just in general, like talking safety. I know that was a question that came up earlier. Like a helmet should be standard gear, honestly, nowadays. Um, I don't believe some of the studies that really don't show efficacy because I think by the time your head hits something, it's decelerated to a point where that helmet's going to help. But that's my my thought. Yeah. And get MIPS. I believe in that technology to help with the 
a shearing rotational force on the head can definitely decrease severe TBIs or traumatic brain injuries. TJ, where can you snow bike? Who lets you snow bike? It, I think Brighton might, yeah. I haven't seen it too much out here. It was definitely becoming bigger in Colorado. And when I was up in the Vail Valley area, I knew a couple of the reps that were trying to push it. Um, and I know Vail Resorts wasn't too keen on it, but they were allowing it in some places. We're talking about skiing here though. Yeah. <laughs> I just Googled the snow bike and it looks more dangerous. So, so did I. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that's where I even think there's, there's kind of that sketchy mix between snowboarders and skiers because sometimes, you know, I have my family is either hardcore ski or I have the rogue one or two snowboarders that, but sometimes yeah. I feel like even that style of skiing doesn't mix. But I heard a saying the other day, and I'm still laughing about it, um, that I thought I would um, share just another Utah thing. And again, learning to ski inbounds and that kind of stuff is that the snow won't hurt you if it don't catch you. And I thought, okay, <laughs> let's talk about avalanches because <laughs> the movie that I was watching, they were out running an avalanche. And I thought, hmm, let's, you know, you, unfortunately, Utah, as we've seen the past couple of weeks, is very well known for its avalanches. And so, you know, just a safety reminder um, for that on the avalanche danger and why why is it so bad up there sometimes i'm i don't know why why is it the way it falls is it because we get heavy and light snow maybe touch on that a little bit yeah actually i think that um yeah all the ski conditions but then also if i remember right last year polly had a great description of why the snow in utah is the way that it is and why it's the greatest snow on earth oh no what did i say now i don't remember <laughs> I That's I'm like, wait a minute, I was there. <laughs> I'm writing it down this time, Polly. I have my pencil. Did, was it good, what I said? <laughs> I think I think Dash remembers. You were talking about this guy's Stead, something, something Stedman or something, the Stedman 100 and how he talks about the, the Steinberg 100. Dr. Steinberg. Steinberg, yeah. Dude, that guy's awesome. Yeah, that, that's that's part of it, but yeah. it's not all of it. Um, but I will say before we get started, if an avalanche catches you, you didn't ski fast enough out of it. So yeah, the, the one way to beat an avalanche is is to ski out of it. Um, that's that's, the that's terrible. Right. <laughs> that frightens me. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're trying to teach it to not do that. <laughs> right, right, and that's the Hollywood image, right? Like. I think that's part of where over the last 10 years, we've seen some trouble uh, really occur is that people overestimate their skills and underestimate the power of the avalanche phenomenon. And I think if you're talking avalanches, which is a, a super passionate topic of mine, and I know of dashes, we've chatted about this a lot, um, prevention and not being in avalanche terrain when avalanches are likely is really kind of the foundation. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that requires a lot of education. It requires a lot of understanding. And uh, I would argue you've got to have a really longitudinal view. So you've got to watch the snow from the first flakes that touch the ground all the way through the season to really understand. Um, and I guess it depends on how technical. I mean, I bet Dash and I could chat for an hour uh, on the snowpack this year. Um, 
I think the UAC is honestly the best resource. And I want to put that plug up front, like the Utah Avalanche Center is continually watching what's taking place in the snowpack with the avalanche hazard, trying to give estimations about where there is the risk, where the hazard's high, and how you can avoid it, and how you can start to understand what's called the avalanche problems that we're dealing with. And um, there's a lot of different problems. Right now, we have something called the persistent weak layer, which is really common in Colorado. And that happens when you get a ton of early snow, and then you get a high pressure dry spell. And uh, essentially, the snow starts to rot a little bit and weaken. And then you get a really strong storm slab, like the one that we just got that was what, 70 inches up in the little Cottonwood Canyon area. Just with wind loading with spots. Yeah. So then you have the, the wind starts to transport more snow and also starts to build energy into the snowpack. And when it's when you start to watch these storm systems, you can really start to watch like, oh, there's energy just getting slammed into the snow and just put into this. So you've got physics at play. And if a strong layer is over a weak layer, then that becomes a potential triggering kind of danger spot. And uh, there's certain areas like right now, high elevation north facing slopes are very hazardous. And what we saw with these last three incidents is, uh, fortunately, people were not fully buried, but um, it sounds like two were pretty darn close to getting their heads covered, and that would have been a, a pretty bad way to go. Um, but they were, the comments from the UAC is that just in the storm system, you have a lot of changing conditions. You've got a lot of energy getting put into the snowpack. That's really hard to predict. Um, where the avalanche is going to occur and it's not an exact science and uh the variability between one square foot of snow to the next can have different energy characteristics different potential for an avalanche to occur and um you're really making your best educated guess when you're out in avalanche terrain and an avalanche terrain is considered anything above 30 degrees to 55 degrees and above 55 degrees it doesn't matter too much because snow usually doesn't stick and under 30 degrees there's just not enough energy there to go um but pretty much anywhere in that window you can definitely have avalanches occur and outside on the steeper you, yeah you can yeah see it on, you yeah. see it and you guys talk about you're you're throwing out some pretty highly technical terms here like 30 to 50 degrees people yeah. do you have any way of telling what's a 30 degree slope i mean i'm out hiking in mill creek am i passing underneath a 30 degree slope yeah, you guys bring that down yeah. a little. Yeah, no, totally. Um, do you want to talk about why Utah has avalanche conditions first? Yeah, we can. Yes. To answer that first question, it, we're, we're, we're in actually a really unique uh, mountain range. Typically, the Rocky Mountain, if you're looking at the, the just the northern hemisphere and in the Americas, the North, North America, all the way up through Canada and into to uh, Alaska, you have the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains are cold, what's called intercontinental snowpack. And that as you move west, um, we're, we're sort of a mix between that Rocky Mountain inter intercontinental and what's called maritime snowpack. On the coast, you have much more uh, high, high water content in the snow. And so you'll get these huge dumps like in the Sierra Nevadas and the Pacific Northwest, and it's a lot of water content. 
but those same storms come from the Pacific, whether it's all the way north or south, they come across that first range of mountains, wherever they're coming from, they release a lot of moisture and they pick up more. And then they also, as they come west over the desert, uh, it dries out. And then what's really unique about the, the Great Salt Lake, the areas surrounding the Great Salt Lake is that we have what's called lake effect. Mm -hmm. And when those storms dry out and get colder as they go over the basin and range in the desert, they vacuum up a ton of water and pick up momentum. And then they ball up in the, the Wasatch Mountains and they sort of hang out. Like the Uintas have a different storm pattern. They get a lot of different snow characteristics than the central Wasatch. Um, and generally speaking, it's safer than other areas. Um, in the West, you have huge snow loads uh, that can be really heavy and dense snow. And as soon as that avalanche uh, releases and sets up, then it's, it's like cement. It's really tough to get out of. That still kind of happens here, but uh, it's less touchy than colder areas. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a double-edged sword because when you're traveling in avalanche terrain here, then you could ski something that would have, you know, would have definitely slid in another area if that slope was in a different snowpack. Um, and then you get up higher just around the corner and maybe that one's more avalanche prone than the other. So, yeah. And, and Polly, you're right. Like it's like what Dash and I are talking about is technical. Um, and I think that just further highlights, like if these are completely foreign phrases and you are interested in skiing outside of ski areas, then it, it should indicate to you that you need some education. Um, and that starts with what's called an ARI level one or a AAA level one. So like the American Institute of Avalanche Research and Education, they do a lot of courses that they build curriculum for. Um, and they're incredibly valuable to build a foundation so you can start to look at these mountains in a way that you understand what the avalanche hazard is. Um, and I'm a big advocate that if you get the terrain and you understand what the avalanche phenomenon is enough, you can have a very long, successful, safe life skiing in the backcountry and not getting caught in an avalanche. Um, but to answer your other question, like if you're walking up Mill Creek, you know, right outside of downtown Salt Lake City, um, there's definitely avalanche terrain there. And, and how do you gauge what 30 degrees is like, well, I think a general rule of thumb is like a lot of black diamond ski runs are in that 30 to 37 degree slope angle. So you can kind of think about that. Um, but what they encourage you when you're taking these courses initially is going around with a little inclinometer. So a little tool that helps you look at the slope and you just hold it up. Your phone can even do it. So you can take your iPhone and match your iPhone angle to the slope that you're looking at with your little compass there. And you can see how steep it is. Um, and that just takes a while to kind of figure that out. Um, yeah. Well, one thing you could also do too is just hold your phone up at sort of at it try to keep the bottom of it flat like it's the hor the horizon line and then you can see you have a 90 degree angle right and so yeah. a 45 would be directly in half if you slice that in half um so anything under that 
uh, 45 degree angle is sort of in that sweet spot, right? But even higher. I mean, that's that's one way to gauge it. If you just took took a right angle, a 90 degree right angle, and mm-hmm. you just cut a line out the middle of it, that's a 45. So um, you can you could use that to your advantage. Just sort of just thinking about it when you yeah you try to hold your phone up flat. Yeah, I mean, not to get in the weeds. But it's a it's a very passionate topic. I, I do think <laughs> the more important thing is to pay attention to, like he said, that here if you're coming to Utah and you plan to go for a walk in avalanche terrain, which a lot of the terrain surrounding the city is avalanche terrain, you should just start by looking at the Utah Avalanche Center's website, and then from there they have an education tab. And they've developed a, they've developed a, a big um, library of education through the Know Before You Go program. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to take a course to start your process. You can start okay. watching videos. You can start taking little online courses through Know Before You Go. And it just starts by breaking down some of these terms um, and Getting you, getting you to think about the terrain that you're entering from the perspective of where an avalanche could could possibly break and where that energy that TJ was talking about is going to form and potentially release a big slide. I'm going to kind of ask you guys too on that is, you know, I've watched these videos. Like you said, I follow the Utah Avalanche Center. So even on Twitter, it's at UAC Wasatch. Um, but if you know you're going to go back in there, what kind of supplies do you want to make sure you take with you? So if you are caught, you're possibly able to be found um, or stay alive for as long as possible. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would I would I would honestly start the list of required materials with one education and training yeah. <laughs> in person for the training because you know how to use the tools that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then dash for Utah beacon shovel probe as one word. Yeah. Like beacon shovel probe is a one word sentence or one word. Um, but it means your beacon, which is the avalanche transceiver, which is the electronic device that will hopefully allow you to get within search range. Um, and then a probe, which allows you to find point search a little bit more, and then a shovel to actually execute the rescue and dig out your partner. Um, and then I think also you can add to that list a helmet. An airbag is now becoming standard equipment. Um, and they're expensive, but they do show efficacy. They do show the ability to decrease burial depth, potentially keeping you above the snowpack. And we've done studies here with uh, the University of Utah. They've explored kind of the capacity of building an air pocket if you do get built or buried with those airbags on. Uh, two-way communication is super important. First aid kit and training is also super important. I'm not sure what else you'd add to that. Water, water, yeah, yeah. water and food. I'd say a buddy uh, too. Don't go by yourself. Yeah. yeah, having a partner. And I, I think to that point, I'm glad you said that because I think also when you're skiing in big storm systems, even inbounds, having people know where you are and skiing in a small group or with a couple friends um, can definitely prevent tragedy. The most recent events where people skiing by themselves. I mean, the yeah. guy who died yeah. fell in a tree well. He was by himself. Yeah. And then the guy in Mount Olympus Wilderness who got stuck in a slide was hiking up into Mount Olympus Wilderness to ski down by himself in the middle of a storm. But 
um, there's the beacon shovel probe go hand in hand. If you just have a beacon, then what are you going to do with it? You can't do anything. You, somebody can find you if you get buried or you can get a, a low signal, but then how are you going to get a probe strike in order to know where to dig? Because right. if, if somebody's this low and you're over here and you think you're at your low point on top of the snow, you dig down right here or around it, you're just wasting tons of time. You have, you have eight minutes or less. I mean, I think they say five minutes now. So yeah, your statistical survivability after 15 minutes almost drops to zero. Um, if you want viable possibility of rescue, yeah, you're looking at eight to 10 minutes. Um, and then there's some other stipulations that we could talk about there, but it again, kind of gets into the weeds. Um, and that's, uh, that actually kind of ties into a project that a couple people and I have been starting to put together with the help of Dash as well called After the Avalanche, trying to not only you kind of pick up from where these Avalanche Level 1 courses go and they teach rescue, but then they don't teach resuscitation because there's just not enough time in these courses. So we're trying to build out resources as well to teach the basic first aid, opening airways, determining if someone has signs of life and what steps we can do there to to try to get the save if possible but yeah 15 minutes it really this the data is not not optimistic after that so if it's not your partner rescuing you then usually it's not a rescue i could go on and on so tell me if you want me to keep going or not <laughs> no i know we're kind of we were we want to try and wrap up so it's not uh although i know we could talk about this for a really long time um I think one thing I would like to cover to wrap this up is to take us back inbound skiing in the resorts. Um, and kind of, I know when I was discussing this podcast with coworkers, um, somebody brought it up to me that they go once every other year, maybe. And it's because they, they don't feel comfortable with the people around them. They're like, I don't know who I'm supposed to watch for. I don't know how mm -hmm. to keep myself safe because I'm not a good skier. People come flying past me. And I know that was also a big concern that I had in the very beginning as well. So I want to talk about like the etiquette that seems to be lost or getting lost out there um, in the ski resorts. And then what people need to know to what to do if you're in resorts and you see somebody get hurt um, what, what approaches do you take there? Cool. Yeah. I, I think kind of to start the simple answer is you, you try to find the times that are not as busy. If you're fortunate enough to be a local in the Wasatch, trying the midweeks or the quiet non-holiday weekends are a really good start. The bigger the ski area, usually the more spread out things are. And that's where the canyons and Park City and Deer Valley can be great resources for people that are learning because they do have a lot of accessible green runs and more open kind of mellower terrain to, to learn on. Um, and then there is, it used to be in the restaurants of all these places on the napkins, they had the skier responsibility code. I haven't seen that in years, but I remember it growing up. Mm -hmm. um, but the National Ski Area Association just updated and kind of expanded upon the responsibility code. And we can go through them real quick and just kind of, the, it's now a 10 point list. And the basic first rule is always stay in control. So that really is dependent upon you getting the skills to stop and turn and to avoid people and objects. 
And then knowing that people ahead of you or downhill of you have the right of way. So if you see them and you're skiing down to them, it's your responsibility as the uphill skier to avoid them. And that being said, part of being the skier and snowboarder that's responsible is you don't stop in areas that other people can't see you from above or where you'd be obstructing the flow of traffic. So you don't wanna stop underneath the rollover. So where the, the grooming kind of tapers off and you can't necessarily see under the lip, you don't wanna stop there. Snowboarders are notorious for this, not for pointing fingers, but they'll kind of come off the, the top of the run and then sit on their bottom. Um, when you're coming onto a new hill, looking uphill to make sure that you're merging with traffic and then having the necessary equipment on your skis or on your snowboard or on your tele gear. So if you're tele skiing, having leashes or brakes, if you're skiing, having brakes, which allow your skis to stop. So if you lose one, they don't run away. Um, I've seen a couple really bad accidents with snowboards that don't have a leash that someone took off and then kicked down a hill accidentally and it runs into an individual. And you can imagine a snowboard accelerating downhill with a sharp edge can do a lot of damage. Um, and then paying attention to all the signs. You know, ski patrol and mountain operations put up a lot of warnings. They put up a lot of heads up. They have closures and those are meant to be abided by without question. Um, oftentimes, as Dash alluded to earlier, those closures close off a, a cliff band, which you could then find yourself standing on 50, 60 feet of rock and pretty, pretty stuck in SOL, you'd say. So paying attention to that, it could be closing off avalanche terrain. And that's been a big one where ski patrol is working super hard out here in the Wasatch. But when you've had a week like we've had now with a bunch of new snow, conditions are changing. They're doing their best to maintain the terrain they have that's open and try to lower the avalanche hazard. But it's not an exact science. So they'll keep areas kind of marked off and closed. And then keeping off closed trails, we kind of talked about that. And then knowing how to use the chairlifts, that's another big one. Um, again, if you're new to the sport, taking that lesson at the beginning of the season, if you're not doing it too frequently, you can have that time with an instructor kind of going through the process, knowing how to get on and off. And then not being drunk or impaired with substance use um, is also a really big one. Um, you know, après ski is definitely meant to be after ski. And then, uh, I think the newest one that they added with the ski areas and the responsibility code is if you are involved in a collision, actually staying there and sharing information with each other and making sure that people are okay. Um, and it's, it's online. If you Google responsibility code, ski responsibility code, you can see the list. And I do think it's kind of a basic etiquette that everybody needs. So we kind of all know how the rules go. I don't know if there's any other thoughts on that, but yeah. There's so much you can do. I think from, it, to me, it all just starts with common sense. <laughs> like what, what's up, what's down. You're, you're constantly assessing the situation and where you're at, at any point on the hill um, and looking around at what's the weather doing? Where's the sun? Is it getting later in the day? Is it getting icier? Is it, you know, when it gets later in the day, it gets colder faster with the when the shade increases. Mm -hmm. um, what, what slope am I, am I on? Am I, am I on a sunny slope? Am I deep in, in the shade in a part of the hill that not very many people are skiing? Um, and then if you're really new, I would say, 
think about where the high points are on the run. If you can get to a high point, you're usually safer because people that get out of control get dragged down. It's just gravity pulling you down the hill. Um, and then if you can get to the side of the runs, staying on the side of the run, you just see less people over there and you're, you're out of the way. You're a little less in the, in the, in the riffraff of, of the busier part of the hill and the runs. Um, and then you never stop on the downhill side of a slope. So if, if there's a rollover, don't stop under the rollover because no one can see you and somebody can be coming real fast over that hill and then you're at the bottom. Um, and then quickly to answer your question about what you do if you get hurt or you see somebody that's hurt, make sure that you check in with them, right? But then maybe before you go and notify other people, if they're in a really busy ski run, if you could just stop and take their skis even and put an X above them so that people know somebody's hurt and you can kind of flag people down or, or wave and just make, make it known that somebody just below you is hurt um, and sort of direct traffic around them. That's, that's obviously uh, a first step to keeping somebody from getting hit again. Yeah. Um, Cause that happens. So a little embarrassing. The ski patroller here didn't say X up your ski. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I think there's a lot to cover. So, yeah. Uh, and then sending for help. I mean, call, usually if you're at a ski resort, there's tons of ski patrol around and staff and just going to the top or the bottom of the run. Uh, and if you, you know, if you're on a chair and you see somebody down, maybe say something at the top of the chair to the lift operator, um, if you're going to be skiing down for help, just go to the nearest lift station or lodge um, on the middle of the hill where you can stop and tell somebody that works for the ski resort and they, could, they all have a fast track right to the ski patrol. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I think getting ski patrol there is obviously the, the first and foremost yeah knowing where you are is big in these areas and even if you just know like i was on this run at the bottom of this lift or you have some frame of reference that can be really helpful um and i know ski patrollers can look super intimidating but most of them are pretty darn nice yeah i know that um tj you told us to make sure we program ski patrols phone numbers into our phone when we got there yeah. so whenever yeah. i take my kids and their friends that's the first thing we do before they go off on their own yeah smart no, i think that's a really good way so you don't have to think about what the phone number is and you know working with professional patrols we got 911 dispatch calls all the time where someone would just call 911 and then they'll actually be able to link you to the patrol most of the time but it is one extra step um, and oftentimes, if we get your direct number, it's a lot easier for us to call you back if we have follow-up questions about where you are or how the patient's doing. Um, and you can imagine, you can go pretty far on skis pretty quickly, and you can get yourself into some pretty precarious, troubling situations if you aren't really aware of what you're doing. So you can get yourself far away from help. Um, some patrol is usually pretty darn good about finding you and helping out. And if you have questions, really, that goes for anything, you can always kind of stop and ask someone on the hill. Yeah. Polly, do you have anything to add? No, those are literally all the things that I would say. Get a lesson, no ski patrols number, ski with a friend. 
yeah, don't go above your ability. Oh, those guys are doing great. <laughs> <laughs> they would just what talk forever if we let them. Yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> but I think it's super important though, because you get excited for your trip and you want to go have fun and tragedy happens and that's what we're after being able to prevent that so i really like that know before you go which is what we teach in all aspects really of any injury prevention but um yeah just i like that information a lot mm -hmm. i think the other thing to add would be listen to yourself too if you're tired or you you feel yeah. like you're a bit run down from the altitude or you need a break or you need a snack like don't don't just let other people push you or the fact that you paid 150 bucks for your lift ticket um make you feel like you got to keep pushing yourself because you you really it needs to be this internal dialogue about what am i comfortable with in this very moment um so that you don't get yourself in trouble that next moment yeah definitely i think that's something like skiing with kiddos has really helped reaffirm for me is like, well, if they want a snack, you go get a snack, you take a break, like you, you go get the hot chocolate and then everybody's still having fun and being safe. I, I see people hurt themselves a lot just from that peer pressure element mm -hmm. um, and, and even internal pressure. Like I spent $10,000 on this ski vacation. You better be darn right. I'm going to absorb every moment of this. And then they, crush themselves. I was, I was skiing with an 80 year old woman last year and she went down on the last run on the easiest part of the hill and it was sunny and it wasn't hard conditions, you know, it was, it was nice and soft. Um, and yeah, she broke her hip and her rib and mm -hmm. it was sad to see cause she had such a great ski day leading up to that. And we should have ended it the run before. Isn't that always the case? It's always the last run. <laughs> well, we, in, in the industry, we, we say, you, you never said this is last. my last yeah. run. Never, this is never my last run. Right. Never say, this is one more and I'm done. Just... Yeah. My friends and I have always gotten in the habit. Well, yeah, maybe like a couple more, skip the last or something like that. But, <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> That's a mental thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Any like last tips, tricks, one, you know, anything that you guys would say, this is my final thing I want people to remember coming to uh, Utah to ski. And I know it's not where your favorite place is. I always say, where's your second favorite place? Because no one wants <laughs> to share their first favorite place. Whatever. <laughs> I, want I think it's just, it should just be about having fun. Yeah. Yes. This is, you have to, remember that you came here to have a good time yeah. if you're not having fun that should tell you something um but yeah being being with friends and enjoying yourselves in the outdoors is what this is all about and so keep those two things in mind i mean you, you don't really want to go out alone right and if you do you know you can make friends pretty easily on the chairlift but um every resort here is awesome and finding where the good runs are, ask questions, ask people, you find locals in the lift line. You can pick out the locals pretty easily. They look experienced. They rip right into the line. Um, <laughs> so you can kind of tell who the good skiers are. Don't be shy to just go ask them for some tips, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Really? You're going to give tips to a total stranger in the lift line? I just want everyone to have fun, Polly. Yeah. <laughs> I was skiing um, here at Snowboard last week, and there was a snowboarder. It was like end of the day. The lifts had all shut down. And there's a snowboarder just standing there um, right by Peruvian. We were coming over in the cat track. And he looked at me and my two skier friends, and he just goes, ski pole. I was like, excuse me? And he was stuck because he was in a little uphill section. And he just like fully expected that we were going to stop and give him our ski pole. And so one of my friends handed him a pole. It was actually Mike Morgan. And he expected him to tow him up the hill. <laughs> like, well, that's the nice. <laughs> and that's I was like, nice. listen, dude, this is part of it. You're on a snowboard. Learn to jump uphill. So maybe you, you should have take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I agree. I think it's skiing is all about fun and just being outside. You get to challenge yourself. You get to be with your friends. You get to be in nature. And I think if you do it right and you approach it with, I want to ski another day mentality, that you can ski until your last days, honestly, 90s. And I remember seeing people late 90s, early 100s, still just doing their little groomers every day. There's one guy that skied Vail. He had a safety light on his helmet and he wore an orange fluorescent vest. And every morning he'd check in with ski patrol because that was the bequest of his wife is that he checked in with ski patrol and that he skied a couple runs and checked yeah. in with us again when he left. And that guy was 101. That's yeah, like, crazy. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yep. Communication too. Just mm -hmm. be communicating with the people around you at all times about what you're seeing, what you're feeling, how you feel um because that'll help you stay safe too and yeah looking at looking at all the telltale signs of when things might get dangerous is easy to tell too when the weather changes wind picks up temperature drops or rises um, those are all things that you get to pay attention to when you're in nature and you, sh you should be paying attention to if you're looking at your phone and listening to music the whole time it's pretty hard to pick up on the signs so mm -hmm. and yeah those are those are the last uh, i think again could keep talking so <laughs> i let you guys go there's nothing more heartwarming than like my 63 year old husband skiing with my five-year-old grandchild you know that's yeah. a generation span of awesomeness right there so yeah i mean that that's his mantra too is just go out there and have fun be safe and have fun so mm -hmm. feels good just hearing about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll send you a picture it's pretty cute <laughs> All right. Anything else? Emma Jane, you have anything else you want to put in or? No, I think that about covers it. Thank you, everybody. Right. Oh, yeah, thank thanks, you. everybody, for doing this. Um, I think it's awesome. We keep doing these podcasts and having people come to enjoy Utah and do it safely and hopefully avoid seeing us in the trauma centers, um, avoid seeing Polly unless you just want to stop in the clinic and say hi. So, Snowbird Clinic is incredibly welcoming. Yay! <laughs> Not yes. You just feel like you want to walk in, get a snack, say hi. Yep, we're here for you. Well, thanks, Holly. Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, thanks thank everybody. Everybody, until next time.